0: season three of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents. I'm Dr. Tara Egan,
1: and I'm not a Dr. Anna. I'm
0: a mom, a therapist, and an author, and I'm a daughter and a cake ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different parenting topic, and we'll interview some fantastic guest experts. We'll leave you with practical tips and information, plus you'll get the perspective of a teen. Stay tuned, everyone. Boom. Th- oh. what's the matter Hit my head you got hurt <laughs> in, within like four seconds of season three i
1: lifted my hand and then i went to pull it back down yeah. and it hit my headphones because that's normally not where my head is anyways woohoo season
0: three i was just about to say like we've grown so much since season one but you're still having a hard time with the <laughs> headphones <laughs> yeah <laughs> well we are starting off season three Super strong already. Definitely. Yeah. So we have a fantastic guest today. Her name is Isis Bay, and she's a clinical social worker here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she is nationally certified in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. She's nationally certified as a complex trauma professional. She's also an adjunct professor, a clinical supervisor, and an implicit bias trainer, which is what we're going to focus on today. So her focus in her practice, which is called Harmony Health Therapeutic Services, is, well, the practice, first of all, offers comprehensive services in the Charlotte area. She has a fantastic team of clinicians who support all sorts of individuals, couples, families. They just have an extensive amount of training and experience. And she, Isis Bay, she focuses on crisis intervention, assessment, individual group, and couples counseling. And she's the leader over there. I mean, she's got it going on. I really admire her as a businesswoman, as a therapist, and just as a general leader in our community. So I'm super excited she's here. And we really saved her guest expert interview for the first episode of Season 3.
1: When we've talked about this interview before, it's actually happening today, you kept on raving about how great she is
0: and how experienced. Well, and she is a Facebook friend of mine. And I don't really know her in real life very well. But on her Facebook page, she is just really, I don't know what the word is, like transparent about her experience and pride in running a group practice and the work she does. Like she's really passionate about it. And I like to think I'm the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I feel like I relate to her on that level, but I just haven't, especially with COVID, I really didn't get to be friends with her on Facebook until I feel like since COVID started and we're just not seeing each other in person. Yeah. So anyway, she's here. Stay tuned, everyone. Please enjoy Isis Bay. Thank you so much, Isis Bay, for being here with us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tara and Anna.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been really excited about this interview. Anna and I have been talking about it all week. Well, probably in the three weeks since we originally scheduled it. And I just I just want us to get started. So the first question I have for you is I'd really like us to
2: take a minute to define the term racism. Ooh. So you guys are troubling the waters with this one, I see. Okay. So racism, a very interesting term that we find, especially in American society, we use it very loosely and very interchangeably with discrimination and prejudice. And they are not the same. You know how those quotes and memes, they say, we are not the same. Racism and discrimination and prejudice are not the same. Okay. Discrimination is using some type of prejudgment or based on a certain type of difference or cultural difference and being able to treat people differently and discriminate against them, treating them differently based on that difference. Well, racism is a structural systematic process in which they use racial discrimination to be able to enforce it. So it's different than just being able to discriminate and be prejudiced. There's another level to when I can use a systematic process, a system to enforce those discriminations. And particularly in this one, discrimination based on race, okay? And race, most people don't know, is a construct. It was constructed a long time ago and people were put into categories. That's a whole nother podcast, right? But what we're seeing is it's systematic. We know a system is designed to reinforce itself. So they took a a way to discriminate against one group, particularly and based on race, a racial group, And are able to deny access to the same resource and benefits and deny power and privilege. So that's racism.
0: So I can't help but think of the examples of the legal system. Right. And then also services offered in our education system. Every system.
2: Every system Inside the United States as an institution has been designed for one dominant group, and that has been the white dominant culture and in the U.S., and it's, it's what it is. If you did numbers across every system, education, healthcare, mental health, medical care, the education system, the legal criminal justice system, the child welfare system, children going into foster care, black and brown children going quicker, and they stayed the longest in that system. And that is all because the systems were initially designed to benefit one group of people. It's just what it was. That's historically how it was. They were in power and control. They, they erected these systems. They designed them. They continue to reinforce themselves. And so that's what we see.
0: Do you think that in mainstream society, people are generally accepting that as truth? And I ask this because I have a small anecdote to share and I shared it on, a, on another podcast we had where there was a article that was posted online this was like like a year ago and it was talking about white privilege and I said a comment like it's hard for me to fathom that people don't understand that white privilege is real and I got so much hate response to the point where somebody went looked me up found my business and then left like a really hateful review about my business saying that I was like unfit and dangerous to be around children, which, you know, was horrifying all because I agreed over the fact that white privilege exists. And so that was like, um, you know, an experience I had, but then I also hear a lot of acknowledgement about systemic racism. So I'm wondering, like, what do you think?
2: What's the reality, right? So when we learn that a system was designed to reinforce itself, when we talk about the system and systemic racism, everyone says our system is broken. I said, no, it's not. It's working exactly how it was designed to work. And so that's what you're seeing because it has been so intentional to use racism interchange with prejudice and discrimination so that people can normalize and desensitize to that. So of course, I don't call people the N-word. I don't do that because we we believe that that's what racism is. And what that system does is we have people focus on the problem. The problem is, right, the racism, the inequities, because for every problem or disadvantage, there's an advantage. There's somebody benefiting off of this thing. So guess what? If we keep you so focused on the problem, we never stop to look at what what's happening. We focus on the dead fish. We don't ever stop to look at what's going on with the water. And so it's intentional to have the normal lay person of white descent to feel like I didn't do anything. I was just born this way. I was just, you right. But you were born into a system that unfairly treats a group of people. And so, because I didn't do anything wrong because, and it's hard when it's personal. So if we personalize it, it's hard. Like, you know, there's an intention when we're doing fundraising, and this might help people, right? You know, when you're trained to do fundraising development, you're trained to, when you write a letter, So your contribution can benefit this. It's you. You start to feel that personal attachment. I'm contributing to this. I'm doing something great for this cause, right? It's my, it's me. I'm attached to this. It's the same thing on the opposite pendulum. It's, I've done nothing personal. I live by the character and the content of the person. And so I can't possibly be contributing to this because I haven't done. So it's the opposite. It's to create this personal, individualized feeling when that's not what racism is. It's really a construct of a group. It's, a, it's this whole collective way that systems have been operating to harm people. And to think that I am personally contributing to that, I'm gonna take high offense. I'm hurt. It hurts my feelings. I'm offended. I, I feel kind of ways. And then if we learn anything about this process of becoming an anti-racist, we learn that it starts with denial. It's, it's just like grief. We're grieving something that we didn't even realize there was a loss, right? It's a loss of identity. It's a loss of that I can be harming someone and I'm not intending it. So I'm in denial. There's some shame and guilt and it comes to anger and then I'm feeling bad about it. And then we know about the anger, shame and blame, blame cycle, right? I'm not going to. So now I'm going to go back and blame because I feel shamed and I'm going to get angry and we kind of spiral into that. And it's so intentional because it helps to justify people's response. No, no, I refuse to, I refuse to accept that.
0: I feel very lucky that the people in my life are not in that state of refusal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So tell me a little bit about implicit bias, like what that term means, because I want to put it in context for our conversation today.
2: So implicit bias is a real thing, okay? Implicit means it happens without intent, unintentionally. I can be the best person. I have a great heart. I have the best intentions, but there's something, everything in our life from young birth, young social, social media, news, and experience that I see on the street, experiences that I had at home, experiences that I had at school, all these things impact us in our life. And they teach us things that stick with us. And so all those experiences start to create and shape our worldview. And so the implicit part is about, I don't realize it. It's not something that's right there. It's on the back part of our brain that stays in the subconscious area. And so outside things in our world, I respond to that based on these subconscious thoughts and behaviors and things that I've learned. And so implicit bias shows up when I have had these experiences and I start to have bias. And it can be on race. It can be on animals. Uh, when I do my work, people get so like disarrayed, like, wait a minute, I have a thought on what fire is. I have a thought on what dogs are. And it's simply from an experience. If you got bit by a dog, you're going to have a different view of dogs than a person who's had a loving relationship with a dog, one experience. And so I've already internalized and held on to some of these things from long ago without even realizing it. And then it shows up in how I treat or respond to my outside environment. And it's people, groups, different culture, how somebody smiles or a smell that I may have. It's gonna show up and I don't even realize it's triggering a belief that I have and I don't realize it.
0: And so much of the time, this belief is not the result of some sort of personal experience. It's from generations of being or societal messages
2: Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. If I'm sitting here reading and I'm constantly reading articles about a group of people because I don't realize that racism is a thing and that they're targeting a group of people how they want to very specifically. I'm watching this and it's going to reinforce. See, they're always the ones on the news. It's a, And that's what I go with, because that's the information that I have presented to me versus You know, and then there's a thing of cognitive dissonance where it doesn't matter how much more I'm still going to, because then it shifts. And to think that everything that grandma and grandpa taught me might be wrong and it might be harmful. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't. I cannot. Like, I can't. My brain is not feeling safe enough to do that because then it will bring up so much other feelings of guilt and shame and hurt and pain.
0: Mm, That's too bad that, you know, because I know for me and I think about, okay, I can... I can have good memories of my grandparents, but also recognize that they made racist comments, you know, and I was exposed to that in my childhood, you know, like I can, I can adjust to the fact that I can have both of those experiences mm-hmm. and recognize the influence that this person whom I loved, or, you know, they passed now, they communicated in a negative way about a, a particular group of people. And, you know, I think of, all sorts of groups of people, whether it's somebody's weight, somebody's color, somebody's, you know, sexual orientation, like there's so many ways that we can categorize people into some like other group.
2: And we do that and see what I think you're missing is the discounting of you've had some type of awareness, some type of experience that helped to grow that where well, we're talking about people who have had very rigid ways where they may have been abused in their own selves. They may have had a lack of, and so I can't resonate with it. I don't, I don't see that. And it's very difficult without that awareness or having that own personal awakening.
0: So with implicit bias, you know, it's something unconscious. It's something that's not intended. Is the way to combat that, is it to try to bring those unconscious thoughts to awareness or is it recognizing that we never are going to bring them all to awareness they exist and to investigate or examine more the conscious thoughts how we conduct ourselves behaviorally or how we interact with others like do you have what's your thoughts on that
2: so one is just like any other stage of change or the person even really ready to accept that because that's huge if i'm not willing to accept that i'm biased because most of us in this world, almost all of us are, Um, probably everyone in the world has, no, everyone in the world has a bias of something, whether it's a food, whether it's a culture, whether it's something of a difference because of our upbringing, because of our experiences, because of our favorites, we have biases. Now, if I'm willing to be open enough to change that, then that's when the process starts with examining that. And that is being able to sit in discomfort. That's the first level. Am I ready to even examine this? And if I am, how do I prepare myself to be able to sit in this discomfort? Because I have to sit in this for a minute to even be able to. And it does require safe spaces. If I don't have a safe space to be able to feel like I can examine this, then I'm most likely not even going to test the wards So to even told it. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I, I like it's a pre contemplation and contemplation. Like, I know that something's wrong, but I don't even know where to start. And do I even have the support group or anyone around me to support me through this process? It is a serious process.
0: I know for me, there's times when I worry that I'm asking a really dumb question. And so I really enjoy being in spaces where I can say, like, I know this could be obtuse, like, this could be an oblivious thing, but I'm not going to learn unless I ask. But sometimes, you know, I'm aware of it other people are not responsible
2: for me acquiring a knowledge base. Right, very similar experience back um, in grad school some years ago, um, because I'm a cis female, identifies as a woman, cis woman, um, black woman. I have difference, but what I learned was I didn't have so much knowledge on um, people who identify as transgender and some of that, and particularly in my own community. So here I am six months pregnant with a child and I put myself into one of these communities events to learn that I wasn't, comfortable. I didn't, I understood, you know, black culture and some of those things, but I didn't understand these categories, this language. And I was like, y'all gonna have to teach me like trans 101 because I'm confused. Give me grace and mercy. Not trying to offend nobody. I, I have my own implicit stuff because I don't understand it. I knew it from a personal view because I have family members and who was um, actually murdered because of that. However, that's the close to So we all kind of do that, like, right. People who have a lot of prejudice, but when it comes to their grandson, if it's my grandson, they're different than the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. And we do that. Right. So even for me, I had a very close family member and I was like, well, that's my baby, you know, and she had been, you know, harmed. But when it comes to just understanding the culture, I intentionally put myself in a very uncomfortable day, not happy with me. there calling me Then Why is she here? She obviously not part of our, Community, I was like, You're right. And so, what the hell are we gonna do? Is you is or is you like what we're doing? Teach me. And so, that is the point. And you know, I don't know where to why we teach cultural humility versus cultural competence. We don't do cultural competence at our age, and and when I do implicit bias work, because. That's a term of privilege in itself. The fact that you even can think that you can be confident in somebody else's culture is, is just amazing to me that we still use this language in our writing, in our grants, on our pages, in our work, in our policies. I'm, I'm humble in this. I'm Someone else is teaching me. The person that I'm serving is the expert. I'm learning from them. And it can be the same. We can have the same background. Even those clients that we serve here teach us about these things. You're the expert.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, how does racism impact everyone?
2: That's a big one. And one of my favorite, in some of the trainings I've done years ago, I started this work um, up North in about the late and early 2000s. And then I actually got involved here in North Carolina with the uh, statewide, I was appointed to the governor's subcommission of disproportionate minority contact. And that was actually my graduate work. And one of the trainings and I was at a workshop and what I realized is like, wow, how implicit bias. So how do we have these disparate numbers in every system, even though people hire black workers, Latino workers that look like the clientele, that looks like the population? We still have such disparate numbers. Well, one, we learned that the system itself, the policies and procedures, the systematic stuff all has bias in it. It was all set up to benefit. Right. So it still gives that. But the people that work in there. And one of the things when I think about uh, an example is the social uh, service system with child protection services, right? So if we have an implicit bias and we go out to see a family and we have to investigate a white family and already we're shutting down the case because we're assuming they have resources, they're fine, we're not going to take them out the home, they might use the word lawyer, we're going to back off. Mm. Well, we go into a black home maybe because they don't have the same amount of food or it's not too part of our cleaning or whatever that looks like. And so we're going to remove that kid much quicker. But yet, that young child who was white and came from a white family may have mess going on in their family. They may truly be abused. But yet, because of our implicit bias, we allow that baby to stay in the system. And so they fall through the cracks and under the radar and they continue to have abuse. And experience those unhealthy and unsafe conditions because we've already assumed they're taken care of, they have resources, and we've already known that white is right. A lot of those children slip through the cracks and do not get the services they need.
0: I've never heard white is right. That's awful. But I can see how, I mean, I can totally see how that's played out in my life. I mean, I can recognize it and think of 10 instances right off, you know, top of my head.
2: And that comes from individualistic culture. Individualistic culture comes from a European Western culture. The culture of the East is communal. It's not the same time span. As the, so when it comes to a Western individualistic culture of time and punctuality and on the mark, there's a history to that. Communal people do things on a rhythm, as the sun moves, how we're feeling it when it's good. But guess what? If we're not on time, if we're not there at the time that you said and it's not as a rhythm of how we feel, even though if you go to the East and you're kind of there and moves on that time, you're not punctual. That's not professional. All of our professional standards are based on Western European culture. And so when you don't fall into that, so you're CPT. We're CP time, color people time, because we just because they're late. It's not because of that. If we understood and we really studied our history, it comes from two separate cultures. And Europe, Europeans did not have as many resources in the sun to be able to grow food all day and throughout the day. And because of that limited time and resources and practice, those that came out of Europe and those cultures had to kind of manipulate time, hence daylight savings, and plant things in very specific intervals of time. And so because it was a lack of resources, was a lot of competition for resources. There was a lot of like, I had to kind of dominate, divide, and control to be able to survive. And that culture became the thing in dominating the world and having to dominate and conquer other cultures where the people of the East was kind of like moving with their rhythm. Everything was plentiful. The sun stayed most of the day. There's no daylight savings time in the East. (laughs) Don't manipulate time. It stays the same time. And so what we learn is from a cultural standpoint, but because that culture became the dominant culture and that became what is right even in language, any language, Any we do that every day with Ebonics and slang and all that. Any language in which a community understands each other is proper language. But we have, again, ingrained and conditioned people that you don't speak proper English and we penalize people. And what we're saying is you're not appropriate. You're second class. You're not this. You're not the same as us. And so we show again that there's a second-class culture, a second-class citizenship, the second-class group of people when actually any language within a community is proper. Right. That makes sense. And instead of us saying, hey, you're not speaking the language of the institution, you're not speaking the language of the culture, you're not speaking the language of this environment right now, we constantly call it proper. And so that just reinforces inferiority. And that is systemic. That is racism.
0: Hmm. That's so interesting.
2: And that's because we learn so much Western history in schools. We don't learn anything about any other group of people. Why is that? Right? And so most people here in the education in the Western don't even know their own history. These are things that's documented by Europeans of how they created these systems. All the information I share today is all in research. But most don't read it.
0: Hey listeners, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about a private Facebook group that I just created. It's called Adolescence, a Parent's Guide, a support group for high school parents. Parents or caregivers of high schoolers or soon-to-be high schoolers are encouraged to join. We'll be sharing educational resources, supporting each other as we survive the roller coaster of parenting a high schooler, and offering a shoulder to cry on when it all gets too stressful. Search for us on Facebook to listen, learn, and join the discussion. I remember being in a class and hearing a instructor, you know, this is, I think it was like in my AP, you know, American history class or something. And they talked about how the civil war was not about race. It was about states' rights. And I'd like to think that I knew that was crap back then, but I'm sure I didn't, you know? And it's just so crazy to think, like, that entire classroom was being influenced by those words and not recognizing this underlying issue of race. What have you been taught about the Civil War? They talk about how...
1: I haven't learned about the Civil War in a long time. Because you're
0: doing AP World History.
1: Yeah, I'm doing World History right now. But, oh, Do you
0: remember when they, what did they say of why the Civil War was fought?
1: Uh, I just remember, I mean, slavery was brought up.
2: And I love you said it was brought up. And what do you remember about it? How did they bring it up? And what did they teach you about it?
1: I mean, we talked about the whole, um, Abraham Lincoln.
2: Freed the slaves. Yeah.
1: And like, I remember I had one teacher, I think it was in fifth grade, who was like, that didn't really do anything. And it like didn't take it till several, several, many years later. So it actually changed. Well, the teachers just kind of like left it like he said that that was the end of slavery and then they just carried on. So I know that I've had <laughs> right? some teachers who are more realistic and other teachers who are just like, here's the material. This is what
2: happened. That's what they said. Right. And so let's just think about that when we talk about what racism looks like. And maybe what, 15 minutes of your class time? There's no reinforcements, no movies. And what do we know about the learning model? That new information introduced, we only learn 5%. In order to increase that retainment and internalization and learning process to 75, we have to reinforce it. We have to do homework. We have to do role play. We have to go over it over and over. And to get to 95% to intention and retention, we have to be able to teach it to someone else. And if we're teaching and we understand that, And all this other stuff is to be able to take an exam, right? It's very interesting that parts of another culture and other people are given maybe 10 minutes within a lesson. So now talk about those people that are in that class. If I'm a brown person or a person, first of all, I'm embarrassed because I'm learning that my ancestors were a slave, not a person that was enslaved. So let's talk about language, intentional because none of my ancestors were slaves. They were people that were enslaved by others. They were people first. Now, we're great at talking about that today, that people are humans first. It's a person with autism. It's a person with a disability. But we still don't talk about it was a person that was enslaved. So these are just small tidbits of how it shows that it's real. And My kids, it's funny because my daughter, she was nine at the time. like you, And and she said, you know, mommy, I found it interesting. My teacher went to talk about the slavery, the enslavement period. And she said, she said something. She was nine years old. She said, I found it so, so awkward, mommy. She said, in the book, it actually said it. We had to read from the textbook and she didn't correct it. She said, so I was confused. I said, well, what is that? She said, well, the teacher said that poor whites and poor, poor blacks at that time weren't allowed to read. She said, but I don't understand because no Blacks was allowed to read at that time. So why would they say that? Only poor whites and poor Blacks were not allowed. Blacks were not. I said, you're nine. Wow. And your teacher and her teacher also said to her, you know, how dare you guys not stand for the flag? There was a war that was fought for the right for you to have education. I had to meet with the principal, say, can y'all explain to me this war that happened, this graduate degree that is teaching this fifth grade advanced class? Because I'm quite confused right now because see we teach our children we do homeschool as well so I'm just confused at what war that was to that allowed my ancestors to be able to go to school these are the things that we're teaching children
0: yeah and I I mean I grew up in New York and then I moved down here in the south and I feel like the south feels like 20 years behind the north and and I think of I didn't hear accurate messages I can't even imagine, like, even what my kids are still hearing now in South Carolina. Right.
1: Yeah, I know. I've fi- I have found it difficult to, like, just hear what people say, and I just don't understand, like, what gave them the nerve to just say such ugly things. I don't know. Like, it's, it's so unbelievable. And, like,
0: well can Racism gave them the nerve.
2: There we go. We, we, it's under patriotism when we want to sing, oh, say, can you see? And they can't understand why people protest that song. And if you read the whole song, it's clearly talking about enslavement. It's like, no, don't you change our cult. How dare you? That's our, that's what racism really is. Well, let's talk a little bit more. I know I mentioned white privilege,
0: but I would love to hear your thoughts and how people or how one can respond to white people when they say things like, but I grew up poor, I experienced trauma, I had it rough, no one did me any favors.
2: I absolutely validate them, because they're right. Um, the intention of racism is to divide and conquer and to create a group of people that lets them know that you, you're you just not, in, you're not a black person, right? So that was intentional as well. And I validate them. I said, you're right. I believe you grew up poor. I believe you grew up without. And I believe that you probably feel like and believe that you didn't have any handouts. And oftentimes I go to education in a great place that you guys can start here in Charlotte. I don't know if they still have it, but it's with the Levine Museum. And they used to have an exhibit that talked about Charlotte here in the 1800s. And there was a story that I learned. It was several years ago, but it impacted me about how this was an industrial town. It was very integrated. And at that time, when again, it was about power and privilege. And I believe it was the populist Tea Party and they wanted to gain access to some lands. And it was now to put out propaganda that the black men are raping the white women and they're doing all these things. And so, of course, that had the working class separate itself from each other. So the working class whites decided to move. And so, and it created Milltown, which is downtown. And what I remember about that story is that the elitist whites, the more fluent and the more upper class, what they did was once they all moved and they pushed the blacks into the area like Brooklyn and some of the ones that is now erased and wiped out, they had their own libraries. They had their own hospitals here. And again, no one's teaching that history of Brooklyn and all these other towns here in Charlotte that existed of all black people. And in those towns that were poor, there were educated, there were working class, all in a black community. And in the white communities, what we learned is that they built the jail downtown for the working class. And the higher upper class started to move themselves and they built what we know now as Queens Road to separate themselves from themselves a very interesting story that again it wasn't my story i learned charlotte's story by going to this museum and they started to separate themselves from themselves yet here in a communal eastern culture they stayed together didn't matter their income status their social status their career status but here, and today, they still have the jail downtown. They called it Milltown. It was for those because they're getting drunk and stuff. They didn't want them in their communities getting drunk and going to jail. So they didn't build jails up there. They kept it downtown and had that road to create them and divide themselves from the old money to the, the working class. And that is documented through history here. And those are the type of examples that we see when it comes to white privilege. And there's a quote that one of the politicians and I don't want to get it wrong, said that the way we enforced Jim Crow is that we filled the poor white, we filled their bellies with Jim Crow because they were poor. They were having the same expenses, but it was easier to divide them and tell them, well, at least you're not black. We're going to take your land, but at least you're not that. We've seen the same thing recent with this administration. We took their benefits, their money, and everything. We reminded them, at least you're still not black.
0: Ugh, wow. I have to admit, I didn't know that about Charlotte history. Yeah. I mean, I'm not from here, but that's honestly no excuse because I've been here for almost 14 years. So we'll have to check that out.
2: Yeah, That'd check out that story. Um, it was called, I forgot the name of it, but it was definitely about the 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 flight, the white flight in Charlotte in the 1800s after being an integrated working community from the industrial time. And they started actually there, they had copies of the actual magazines with the black man as the, the vampire stuck in the women. Yeah. And it was all propaganda to get people scared and afraid and to separate themselves.
0: Now thinking about and shifting it to places of work and how I know you do this implicit bias training and you offer it to corporations and businesses who want to increase their literacy on this topic What are some suggestions that you have about how organizations can create an anti-racist culture within their work environments?
2: I would definitely, one, have that conversation. Um, And we do it with the community. It's an awareness. It's a lot of education. It is organizing and saying, okay, what do we want this to look like? And it starts with that really basic implicit bias training and moving through that um, just to, because until you disrupt some of that, and sit with that discomfort It's like, OK, now how can I further this work? And then probably move more into the anti-racism work, even for us. Our implicit bias training is a prerequisite for any anti-racism work that we do. And then that's the consultation and looking at it because we have to talk. I've had a, quite a few organizations that bring me in, and then they'll get the call, Hey, I says, we want to better reach our clients. We know that they're mostly black. And then I start with, Well, why do you have all white women working with young black boys? Or why are all white older women working to serve young black women? Why? And they're like, Hmm. And I said, What is that about your hiring practices? What's happening? That's why it's implicit. We don't even realize that certain things that we have in place already have barriers to getting who we're looking for. Yeah,
0: that's really interesting. My husband is um, an executive in a restaurant franchise. And this is a topic that is so near and dear to his heart. And I know that he would just crave, like he would just soak up any information that he could get.
2: I would start with that, the implicit bias, because it helps to just start the awareness, even if it's the discomfort to sit in it. Some people are going to choose to stay or leave because of that discomfort tells you if, if I can handle this change. And if they're not ready, it lets you know who you, who's supposed to be a part of your organization or not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. While we're talking about the, the implicit bias training, if our audience is interested in hiring you. this training what should they do to access you where should they go
2: they can always reach our website uh www.harmonyhealthplc.com or just simply email info at harmonyhealthplc.com so if they want to email our booking team is there they just inquire about implicit bias training
0: and they can do
2: it from anywhere yep because okay. we can do a virtual training. I've done virtual we've been doing full virtual trainings. Um a faculty at Charlotte AHEC, we've done quite a few there. I do them here at my agency. It's oftentimes less expensive when they book an agency training instead of paying per person to somewhere else that we're having it. And I do want to share, there's another organization that does a deeper level, and they probably do more systematic, so their trainings fill up and they've been limited, but it's Race Matters for Juvenile, RMJJ, Race Matters for Juvenile Justice, and they do do a very intense, forgot the name, it used to be called anti-racism training, but they have a new name for the basic level, and then they have an organizational level. But again, I don't know the limits. It's usually kind of partners in like certain institutions, but just for like community organizations, I can't speak for that and how that works. Now, I
0: feel like having this training is important for everyone. However, that's not the way people are going to necessarily view it. People want to say, oh, well, my organization's great. Like, we don't need this. Mm -hmm. So, saying that, what are some things that our audience could tune into to really recognize? if their organization is one that in particular would benefit from this type of training. So whether it's not having people of color in an executive team or, you know, what are some characteristics that people should be like, Hmm, this should probably be something we prioritize.
2: Absolutely. If your leadership team is not diverse, absolutely. Because what we're saying is no, there's not been, Any person of color or any other person of difference that fits our qualifications, because there's plenty of people out there with degrees and experience and history and in the work in the industries. So if we seem to have patterns that most of our management and our leadership positions don't is not diverse, there's usually a strong indicator there. Another red flag is looking at who you serve versus who you hire. Do I hire people that look like and identify with the people that we serve? Not that others cannot, right? And then let's talk about equity because we know it's clearly that persons of color are like 17 cents on the dollar. Let's look at our pay scales. Let's look at that. Let's look at how we promote and how we interview. What are our interview questions like? Our hiring practices.
0: These are great things that leaders can take a a look at to, you know, to examine whether or not this should be something that is super prioritized. I mean, it should be, but at the same time, the company's got lots of issues, but we, I want somebody who's listening right now to think, oh gosh, like this has to be at the top of my list because there's a million things I need to worry about, but this is something that there is a resource available that I should be accessing and for them to push it up on their list to that first thing.
2: Yeah, and it's also when you consider that top down approach, because we're, especially if we're a service provider, let's talk about that. Because if I'm serving people, right, those that I'm serving, when it comes to service providers, who am I actually getting the input for um, who I'm serving? Because if I'm serving a son, and I'm not talking to the people that I'm serving, but yet I get info and my intel and my numbers and my data for people, again, that don't have or have those experiences. What does that look like? I'm starting from the top and i'm just getting numbers from people at the top and have not touched the people so as a service provider if i want to know who has quality services on the ground i should be talking to the people on the ground not asking the experts with the numbers because they haven't even included people on their advisory board and not people that have these qualifications I'm talking about if you want to, if you want to serve homelessness, then you have to talk to the people, not those that have an expert or a degree and that have studied homeless people. You have to include those of the community. Representation matters.
0: I can't help but think of how relevant this is for the vaccine right now in that there has been um, more focus on the fact that people of color have distrust for the healthcare system and it can impact their willingness to get vaccinated and how much there's been an emphasis on black doctors, black nurses, hispanic professionals or just not even professionals but just people who could potentially be influential to have people perceive the vaccine as something that's that's safe for them not just white people
2: and yeah, there's a lot of people who do feel it's safe but don't have the resources to access that because Again, I've done studies some years ago just in the in the health field on implicit bias and some of my studies and I teach that implicit bias. A lot of those trainings where it was doctors and students, um, medical students who had a bias about people who were overweight. So the obesity, the, the so-called obesity numbers were very despair because I already had a thought and an implicit bias without even understanding about overweight and what that means. Um, So many of our things, what we don't, again, um, consider is that so much our research, these numbers, they're not based on the people that we're serving. They're based on middle-class white people who they've accounted for their research, the ACE study. Everyone accredits this whole study, but what we didn't factor into these numbers is that People have been experiencing trauma for a long time, but it's when an alarm that many middle class whites were being impacted and things were happening that we have this study to say, wait a minute, there's an alarm here. And that's racism. That's systemic, not prejudice and not discrimination. It is race because now it only becomes important because it's impacting the dominant group and culture. Mm, It's not a problem unless white people experience it. Or we're going to focus on the problem so that we can keep the eye on the problem and not look at who's benefiting from the problem.
0: Goodness. I hate that we can't
2: talk about this forever.
1: <laughs> right? I have learned so much. I've loved this conversation. Oh, my gosh. It's like every time.
0: <gasps> yeah. And think yeah. about that. You have a lifetime of them. Yeah, moving forward. Now, before we you know, kind of wind down for today, I do want to ask you, your suggestions for white parents. White parents were doing their best to raise anti-racist children. Do you have any guidance for these parents? And obviously I ask this for my own you know, knowledge base here.
2: Number one, let's stop the being colorblind. So agree. Let's stop that. Because again, now we're discounting and minimizing difference. Let's tune into difference. Let's acknowledge it, let's look at it, let's let's explore it, let's learn about it, teach me about that. Let's not make the one black person the expert on all black experience. Let's understand that there's difference within black culture, Latino culture, everyone's not Mexican and every Latino does not handle stress and problems the same way and eat the same foods and celebrate the same holidays, nor do black people or Native Americans or people of the LGBTQ community. I mean, that was huge for me going to, I went to a change conference and man, there was such a myriad of beliefs and difference within the community that blew my mind. And I was like, oh, this, there was more, it was a lot of discrimination within the community. And we have to even be, understand that, that there's so many levels of discrimination and oppression within oppressed groups. Like, let's look at that. Let's look at some of the celebrations and not just focus on the lack and the deficits. How about we lift up and celebrate the fact that they have been triumphant. They've been resilient. They have a lot of strength. Um, One of the things I talk about is language and my implicit bias work because so many will say, you know, here's my favorite. This is why I do this work. I give, I'm the voice for those who don't have a voice. People say that all the time. Who's to say they don't have a voice? It's different to say somebody don't have a voice versus no one's listening to their voice or their voice isn't being heard. That savior thing shows up, right? Let's work to not be the savior. Let's work to allow them to lead and learn in that sit in that cultural humility and not have to be the one to save the world.
0: Yeah. I have quite a few Facebook friends who have adopted children of other races and they are so outspoken about this white savior complex and how frustrating it is for them to hear for for me Facebook is a place where I work to have a lot of diversity because you get to see that input all day long. I mean I want it in real life too but we're in covid and but when you see all of these different perspectives and stuff and that's something that's really captured my interest in how families that have multiple cultural groups within it or there is an adoption or something like that and to hear the frustration that comes from these parents when they're they're oh you saved this boy from because you pulled him out of foster care or adopted them
2: from another country and these parents are like I didn't
0: save anybody like this is my child I'm the
2: educated white person in the room pat me on the back and that's the white fragility yes
0: so my caseload as a clinician is not as diverse as I would like it to be. I've worked so hard to make, make every family feel embraced and included and respected. And so when I feel like that message has been accurately portrayed, I'm like, okay, progress, you know, and, um, but a question I have, so if I'm working with, let's say a child or, or a parent, cause that's who I work with is children and parents. And I can tell like they turn to their parent and they speak one language and then they turn back to me and they speak like they're talking to a white lady. Do I just go with it or do I, is there something I can say to make them be themselves or are they being themselves and there's just two different versions of themselves? Like I I always look at it as, oh, I'm failing to present to them that I will accept them in you know any version of, that they have, that if they don't have to talk to me like a white lady.
2: Mm-hmm. So how about this? I will start with the the terms. The so language is important, right? The first time you said, I worked so hard to make them feel. And then you just said, I want to make them. There is no making. That's mm-hmm. that, right there, that I have the power to make somebody else feel a certain way. And we teach them that emotions are yours to own. So in that thought, and how, so how I'm thinking right there is going to already project and reinforce that same thing that we're trying to defeat. Love that. Right. So they are going to show up how they are and that's what they've been trained. So we want to sit in humility. We'll ask them, it's just a simple observation. Hey, teach me about that. I'm, I'm curious right? Cultural humility is shown up in curiosity. I noticed that when you speak to your family, it's different than how you speak to me. Is there a reason behind that? Is that because maybe that's still what they're choosing and that's been their survival navigation and I choose to use that and that's my power to utilize it Mm. versus I want you to speak to me the way we don't even know what that is because we have already determined that's what it is. Teach me about that. I noticed that.
0: Okay. That's really helpful. So you've you've already mentioned how organizations can contact you to find out more about your implicit bias training. Is there any other resources that you want to mention today that haven't already been mentioned that could be great references for people who are trying to learn more about this topic?
2: Sometimes we don't realize we are our best resource. I have great intentions. I know that I'm a good person. However, I have to seek out and explore what these biases are and I have to, am I ready, right? I'm my own resource. I'm my own expert. Am I ready to address this? And if I am now, where do I go? Because if we don't even start with self, that self-work, I say it all the time, self-work, it doesn't go much further because I'm not going to have the will, the motivation or the support group. And then I will probably start with my support systems. Hey, I'm about to embark on this journey. This is not easy. You know, there's an African proverb when they say if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Love that. that collective mentality. So as our agency, a lot of people get concerned because we say we're African centered. We absolutely are because we we use the framework of resiliency, person first, and a collective. And even our clients that are white, that are Asian, especially those that are white, they love it here because we help them to understand how individualism and Western culture has impacted their mental health and why they don't have the same support from their family through this process. And so they're still trying to move and do this process without that collective. And that's not easy. So anti-racism work absolutely is not easy in an individual because that it goes counter to everything we're trying to disrupt that whole individualism concept which is what constantly perpetuates this system is that it's so divided and so start with that research self and then really seeking out those that are really wanting to embark this journey because you're going to need that support group after our training, we do have a Facebook group. It's private that those only those who have been through it continue to do the work. And we have like historical resources to read and to self-reflect. It has been kind of stagnant for a while because I've had a lot of loss and just COVID and stuff. So we are going to start getting that back in order so that people have a support group of difference because... I mean it's the same for those that i serve if it's not an agency training just a community training i don't get as many black people because again we've been conditioned that we don't have the bias and we don't have the work to do but we were born and raised in a very individualistic racist society so we judge our own even harder and so we all have work to do we all have our own and there's safe spaces where whites have created anti-racism safe spaces. I know RMJJ does that work where they have a white caucus and the people of other uh, color caucus to be able to do that work and then strategize that way. YWCA have done some work on anti-racism. I know the YWCA have done a lot of workshops in that, but embarking on this journey as we do this, we strongly help people to organize their own safe space, like a white safe space to Start to go through that grieving process, that denial, that anger and and feeling safe enough because it is whites responsibility to do that work. It's not it's not people of color and people who have been through an oppressed system to help white people understand. And that's our thought. Like, come on. It's like, here's the work, here's the tools. And it's for you to advocate and work through. But if you haven't done it, you can't lead the blind, right? There's a lot of people who can help. And so we start there, starting with our own communities. How do we create a safe space? Let's do this work together. Let's get a couple of organizations who's committed to this work. And we're all going to start this implicit bias work and this transforming our agency together, at least two or three, and then do it that way. So you have a support system. You can kind of do this these monthly or biannual meetings to continue the work, you know, with some consultation with us and moving through an anti-racism curriculum or, you know, that process, but start with self and then having a collective to work through the process.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely a product of an individualistic culture.
2: A little bizarre girl. <laughs> so am I. I've been fighting and disrupting it for 30 years. It's, it's work. That sense of community or like relying on family
0: members and things like that's not the environment I grew up in that you were, you know, like you made your own way for me, you know, like my parents were super, you know, that struggled with mental illness and we weren't a community. And that as far as like within our family or even part of a broader community, because a lot of people who struggle with mental illness are very solitary, you know, they're very alone. And so I just love this idea of finding a safe space, finding other people who are willing to start this journey and do it alongside each other and grow.
2: Yeah. I say, do that. And then say, you know what, let's get ISIS on the phone. Let's do some of this stuff. Let's start this process because then it's that work. Right. And then guess what? We're splitting some of the consultation. Maybe it's that meeting between the three agencies and, as far as those consultations. Okay. How are you doing over there? We're not doing so well. Okay. I we, we struggling. Okay. But let's call you guys. Did you notice, were you able to implement some of those things? And that changes the process.
0: Well, I just want to say, thank you so much for being with us today and taking the time. I know you're a very busy lady.
2: And- <laughs> Everyone uses that word. Do you sleep? I do. I know.
0: I see you on Facebook, and you're just like such a rock star with your business and your family, and you're a leader. So I appreciate you taking time with us today. You have to get um, in
2: Anna. What do you do on Saturdays? Uh,
1: school.
0: Yeah, she's like got a really intense school schedule, and she also does a lot of podcasting with me on the weekends. I see
2: that. Well, yeah. if you ever have a space every every Saturday, twelve to 1.30 p.m. Our group, our family uh, nonprofit does drums for life and is on Facebook. And we do a live of just pure African drumming and dance and teaching about culture and community and collective and disrupting it and natural health. But it's really focused and we use the African drums as a way to heal and to bring back. And so I probably would add that is learn more about the culture so that you can share with others. Not that as the expert, but this is what I've learned. This has been my experience when I've tapped into that.
0: Yeah, I wrote it down 12 to 1.30 on Saturdays.
2: Yep, drums, the number four life is the page you can follow. You can watch all of the old uh, lives and then just play them, share them with others. Because sometimes just learning about another culture and asking questions and sharing with other people your experience helps because it's your personal experience versus you just trying to teach them and show up as an expert on something. This is my personal experience with this.
0: Yeah. Oh, we should not be showing up as experts on anything like culture.
2: But that's what, you know, that's what we do versus this has been my experience. Check it out. This is how it's helped me.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, great. I'm going to put a link to this in the in the show notes so that people can, can visit. I once again want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you guys for having me. Well, thank you everyone for listening to our podcast episode today.
1: Make sure you listen to our other upcoming podcast episodes. They're released on Wednesdays.
0: That's right. And please pass along an episode that you think could be helpful to a friend or family member and leave us a review on Apple podcasts. Yep. I love you Mom. Love you too, sweetie. Hey, listeners please join our free parenting webinar series. It's offered each Monday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please visit www.drterriegan.com to register via Zoom. Each webinar will offer a 15 to 20 minute presentation hosted by me, followed by a 30 minute question and answer session. If you can't join us live, you'll be sent the recording directly to your email so you can watch it later at your convenience. Join our Facebook page at Dr. Tara Egan to get details about topics we'll be discussing in upcoming webinars. This is my chance to meet you, so please register today.